Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So, so there's an old Russian joke, uh, and it goes something like this. Uh, there's a guy, uh, he's uh, down on his hands and knees in the street looking for something. And another guy comes along and says, what are you looking for? And he says, uh, I'm looking for my keys. And the other guy says, is this right where you dropped them? And he said, no, I dropped them uh, about a half a block away. And he says, well, why do you look here? And the guy says, because the light is better here. And there's a way in which our approach to science is a little bit like that. Uh, there's a way in which we look at the stuff that's more comfort comforting or easy for us to look at as opposed to the place where it would make sense to look. We often kind of handle science in a very selective way, like we're going through uh, a buffet line, just picking the stuff that we like. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about it with somebody who's been on the show before, Naomi Oreskes, professor of the history of science at Harvard University, the author of several books, including the recently released Why Trust Science. Uh, also joining us for this segment is Jane Litvinenko, uh, senior reporter for BuzzFeed, focusing on disinformation, security, and online investigations. She's recently been reporting extensively on disinformation scams and conspiracies surrounding COVID-19. So, uh, first of all, Naomi Oreskes, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, you know, every day, it seems now, Naomi, every day we just sort of, first of all, your book could not have come out at a better, which is to say worse, time. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, uh, a book about why trust science. It does seem every day we're holding our breaths to wait and see if the scientists or the people with the medical science or uh, public health training will be able to persuade our political leaders about some important question. Can we lift restrictions at Easter, despite what our epidemiologists say? Can we use certain anti-malarial drugs in an off-label way, despite a total lack of scientific evidence uh, of their effectiveness? Um, and, you know, sometimes we get the answer that the epidemiologists hope the political leaders will give, and sometimes we don't. But one term that you use, and I think I'm saying it correctly, Naomi, is implicatory. And uh, in other words, uh, there's sort of a, a force that might propel a citizen or a decision maker away from settled science. And it's an implicatory bias. Explain what you mean by this. Well, yes, thank you for that. So I, I pronounce it implicatory, but I don't know okay. if that's right. But it, it's about implications. We deny science when we don't like its implications. And we have a very large amount of evidence now suggesting that this is a central piece behind the rejection of climate change, for example, and other major issues where people have been resistant to scientific findings. And we have seen this in spades in the last few weeks. So COVID-19, the pandemic, has a whole set of implications that are pretty unpleasant and unhappy. And particularly, they have really unpleasant implications if you're a conservative who doesn't believe in big government. And so what we've seen in the last few weeks is how the Trump administration really resisted for a long time, even acknowledging that this was going to be a serious problem. And then once it became obvious it was a serious problem, 
refusing to acknowledge that it would we would have to take steps that would have serious economic consequences and so on down the line. So it really is a kind of textbook example. Um, it kind of makes me think maybe there really is a God because she sent this to prove that my book is correct. <laughs> well, it's a rather high price to pay for your moving uh, well, up the bestseller <laughs> list, but I take <laughs> your point. point. Yeah. Yeah. I right. mean, and just to sort of follow up on that a little bit, I think another way to think about this is we often base our judgments of science in a situation like that on on kind of how we feel about some other institutions. So people who don't like big business, who distrust big pharma, maybe they're going to turn out to be anti-vaxxers because they never liked big business in the first place. They have no trouble believing that, that the pharmaceutical industry would make you take an unnecessary and maybe dangerous vaccine. And people who don't like government and does, don't like the idea of government playing a huge role in our lives, they're going to be easier to persuade that there's no big pandemic problem here because, as you say, that would involve the government. Exactly. So what you're describing is what psychologists and cognitive scientists call motivated reasoning, and we are all susceptible to this, whether we're Democrats, Republicans, independents, liberals, or conservatives. We all tend to believe the things we want to believe, but what has happened in the United States in the last 30 years, I would say, is that we've seen these issues become politicized along partisan boundaries because of this issue of big government, because we have so many large issues now, scientific issues, medical issues, public health issues, and environmental issues, in which the science falls on the side of needing some kind of big government response. And it's that, uh, it's that bad luck story for conservatives, right? It's not like scientists set out to prove that we need a big government, but the reality is we have these things in our lives, like climate change, like COVID-19, that we can't solve as individuals and that the private sector maybe in theory could have addressed, but in practice has not. And so we're left with the situation that we need government to step in. And this is something that conservatives have had a very, very difficult time with because they have a principal opposition to big government. And so now they're stuck. They either have to adjust their political views or they have to downplay the problem. And the tragedy we were seeing in the case of COVID-19 is that downplaying the problem means that people die. Right. So we're talking to Naomi Oreskes right now, professor of the history of science at Harvard, and her new book is called Why Trust Science. Let's add Jane Litvinenko, a senior reporter from BuzzFeed, to this conversation. And first of all, Jane, I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Yes, you nailed it. Okay. So I am going to take a really deep breath and read the headlines of a bunch of your stories. <gasps> no, the British Army isn't marching through London because of coronavirus. Don't believe those, tests, those texts that say the federal government is going to use the Stafford Act to quarantine the United States. New York City officials say there is no shutdown planned this weekend because of the coronavirus. This is written before New York actually did shut down. Uh, no, Daniel Radcliffe doesn't have coronavirus. T Twitter has taken down a fake account that spread a rumor the crown prince of Abu Dhabi had the coronavirus. Here's what you need to know about air purifiers and coronavirus. Coronavirus. Political uh, police departments are spreading coronavirus misinformation as a joke. Chinese hackers are using coronavirus to go after Mongolia. Hackers are sending fake uh, HIV results and coronavirus emails to infect people's computers. Televangelists peddling silver as a fake cure for coronavirus has been warned by officials to stop. Twitter has taken down a fake account that spread a rumor. That, oh, that was the uh, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi again. Sorry. So, Jane, what's happening here? I mean, these aren't all exactly the same 
same thing. But it seems like we've got two pandemics. One of them is uh, COVID-19 and the other one is whatever that is. Right. And the World Health Organization actually called the situation online an infodemic. And look, we've known that online mis- and disinformation has been a problem for years. Um, But what we're seeing now is essentially a convergence of every scammer in the world and almost every uh, potential target in the world being online. So this means the spread of misinformation has been uh, much larger than we have ever previously seen. It has been quite international. Um, and part of it is driven by sort of, um, you know, uh, your friends sending you text messages just in case. Part of it is bad actors trying to make a financial profit off of it. And part of it is people spreading uh, uh, spreading this stuff out of uh, political motivation. Right. So, um, yeah, I think the, there are sort of different groups. I mean, some of these things do seem to fall into, as you say, your friends sending you texts. And even if your friends are not utter fools, um, and, and even if they're just trying to be helpful, it's not unusual for people to get a text or a Facebook message from somebody they know explaining or, or adding a link to something about putting water in your nose and then putting a hairdryer in your nose, uh, you know, really hot or something mm-hmm. like that. And I First of all, as somebody who tracks these things down, is it, was this somebody just w- would this kind of thing just be started by somebody trying to amuse him or herself or like how does a thing like that get started? Right. So, uh in a lot of the in a lot of times when you look at misinformation, attribution or tracing it to the original source is very difficult, especially when we have a volume like this. But a lot of it starts with sort of online figures posting a video or a message, and then that video being forwarded onwards and forwarded onwards as uh, like a broken game of telephone, quite literally. We've seen this with quite a few hoaxes. A lot of the health misinformation has taken this shape, and a lot of it, you know, is attributed to something, uh, to a health authority um, or to another authoritative figure, but of course doesn't actually contain anything in there that would be helpful. And as you pointed out with the hairdryer, it can be uh, quite dangerous at times, actually. So um, so for us, uh, essentially the things that we're looking for is um, how this misinformation has warped. And with health misinformation, it's been particularly interesting. Um, with the case of the hairdryer, originally it was a YouTube video that got taken down um, fairly quickly. Then that YouTube video became a, a meme, so a, an image with, uh, with just text on top of it. Um, after that, it became a text message, and after that, it became a voice message. So this stuff has really... Um, has really traveled far online, and that's what makes it so difficult to trace back. All right, let's hear a little bit of what that particular idea uh, sound, sounds like. Go ahead, Kat. One of the things that was pointed out in this interview with one of the doctors, foremost doctors that has studied the coronavirus, says that the nasal passages are the coolest part of the body. That's why the virus tends to go there. This is, sounds really goofy, and it did to me too, but it works. Once the temperature reaches 136 degrees Fahrenheit, the virus disintegrates, okay? 
And I said, well, how would you get the temperature up to 132 degrees? The answer was you use a blow dryer. So you hold a blow dryer in front of your face and you inhale and it kills all the viruses in your nose. The problem with this is that this is the in Okeechobee County, Florida commissioner. In other words, this is Mm -hmm. a a political official who's saying this. So, so, I mean, (laughs) Jane, part of the problem is, you know, it's one thing. It's dangerous enough if one of your cousins whom you haven't seen in a while sends you this as a text or a Facebook message. But then it seems to come from has the endorsement of somebody. I mean, I don't really have any particular notion of, what of, a, uh, of the credibility of a generic Okeechobee County commissioner, but it's like not from nobody. It's true. We've seen a lot of figures of authority uh, push misinformation forward, which really causes a lot of confusion. And as a matter of fact, uh, social media networks have started taking down posts from politicians and from heads of state that promote um, health misinformation. So uh, all of this, you know, there's so much information coming at people. Um, and the coronavirus narrative and what we know about it changes not just day to day, but hour to hour. So part of it is just it's so difficult to keep up with what is working or what isn't working, what officials are seeing or aren't seeing, what the public should or shouldn't be doing. And misinformation really sort of plays into that confusion and plays into that anxiety for people. All right. So, Naomi, there's a problem that we're about to discuss that is not a new problem. And that is the the whole business of people pushing nostrums of various kinds, cures of various kinds. And, and Naomi, I think it goes back, first of all, to the psychological disposition we were getting at at the beginning. People want to believe good news. They don't want to believe bad news. So going back to the 19th century, people wanted to believe that there was some kind of potion or elixir or snake oil, as they say, that would restore your hair or your masculine sexual energy or your youthfulness or make your neurasthenia go away or if someone wrapped you in wet bed sheets that would help you in some way. I mean, maybe you could just say a little bit, Naomi, about kind of the history of us. We want these things. That's the reason they can be sold to us. Yes, and this is a very important point, and I think it gives us an opportunity to think about what, if anything, is different in the present moment. So you're absolutely right. There have been snake oil salesmen for as long as we know, and people have always been desperate for cures, for things that can't be cured, like growing old or, you know, whatever. Um, But I feel like what is different in the present situation, you really nailed a moment ago when you mentioned that health commissioner, that we have people in position of authority, people in position of power, people who are educated and who should know better promoting disinformation. And this, I think, is, is quite serious because, as we've seen this week, when someone in a position of power, like the President of the United States, says something that is untrue, it will be reported in the mass media. And many journalists will feel that they have to report it because, after all, this is the President of the United States speaking. And many journalists will not feel that it's appropriate for them to call it out because that would seem like editorializing. And so now you have disinformation coming from the very top, coming from people who you think should be in positions of authority, like a health commissioner, and that makes it almost impossible to correct the disinformation. So if somebody's a snake oil salesman and I can say, 
he's a snake oil salesman, and I know that because X and Y, that gives me a position from which I can correct disinformation. But when it's from someone who supposedly should know, that makes it much, much more difficult. No, Naomi, one of the terms that you've introduced me to is organized skepticism. So, mm-hmm. it, in fact, the, 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 what, the, one of the ways that medical science and science in general work is that for a new claim to be accepted, whatever it is, including this drug will work for this particular malady, it has to overcome a bias against the possibility that it's true. In other words, a claim has to prove, has to overcome that organized skepticism, which seems to me to be the thing that's kind of breaking down in a big way right now as we start talking about using drugs in ways they've never been used before. Well, organized skepticism hasn't broken down among scientists. And, of course, if you have a crisis situation, if you have people facing a potentially fatal disease, it might be appropriate to use experimental drugs because if you don't, they may die anyway. So, And and now this wouldn't be new. I mean, during the AIDS crisis, we had the demand for the FDA to approve drugs more rapidly than normal. And when you're facing a fatal disease, that can be the right thing to do ethically, morally, and scientifically. But I think what is upsetting to me, and the reason why, you know, I get angry sometimes at so-called skeptics, is they're not really skeptics at all. Skepticism in science is a good thing. As you said, we even have a term for it, organized skepticism. It's a kind of systematic skepticism that demands evidence for claims. But that's not what we see from the merchants of doubt, the purveyors of disinformation. What they do is they use skepticism in a corrosive way to say, oh, don't believe those scientists, don't believe those people. And they use disbelief as a political tool. And so it makes me angry and upset because the equivalent would be, imagine a doctor who took medicine, took something that was good, and used it to kill people. All right, so um, let's go back over to Jane, but we're also going to play a clip here. You're going to hear uh, Jim Baker, an evangelist you may have not thought about for a long time. <laughs> I was actually a journalist during the first iteration of Jim Baker's uh, troubles uh, and wrongdoings and problems. But uh, here uh, he is talking about one of his claims. You're saying that silver solution would be effective. Well, let's say it hasn't been tested on this strain of the coronavirus, but it's been tested on other strains of the coronavirus and has been uh, able to eliminate it within 12 hours. It has been proven that it has the ability to kill every pathogen it has ever been tested on, including SARS and HIV. And it is uh, 99% kill within 12 hours of exposure to the silver. (laughs) All right, Jane. Um, So, well, first of all, maybe put this into some context. Uh, Jim Baker is talking to somebody who I believe has the initials MD uh, after her name. What's going on here? Right. So you played a clip that caught the attention of the FDA, the FCC, and the New York Attorney General, all of whom issued uh, several different warnings to Jim Baker to stop selling uh, colloidal silver, which is the product that he's advertising there. Um, and uh, the, the sort of tactic that we just heard is very interesting because he himself is not saying, you know, it, so explicitly this product will protect you from the global pandemic. But what instead he's implying is that 
it has uh, been effective against other viruses and so may be effective against this one. Now, that is not true. The colloidal silver, um, colloidal silver will not protect you from COVID-19. But what this shows is sort of the creative ways that snake oil salesmen are trying to sell their products in the midst of an epidemic to their audiences. You know, um, another thing that's happened, Jane, and I think this sort of falls into a different category, but it, it conjures up the same problem, is that we've had police departments, you know, in I think what you could argue is a sort of well-meaning um, effort using their own kind of hoax. They're basically putting out these PSAs that say, if you recently purchased meth, it may be contaminated with the coronavirus. Please turn it into the police department. We will test it for free. Right. This is sort of a way to get people to turn in drugs. But it does seem as though it's once again kind of undermining our belief in in truth coming from official sources. You're right. And it's important to note here that this was at a time when the U.S. hasn't seen the amount of coronavirus cases that it is seeing now. So there was a lot of sort of levity around the virus online at that time. But what police departments and local news anchors, and local reporters, and even local politicians were doing was sharing this joke um, that uh, has really been made before. We've seen we've seen this joke being made during other epidemics um, as a way of saying, hey, yeah, um, you know, we we know about this virus and we're going to kid about it. Um, and now most people sort of understand that this was said tongue in cheek, but at a time when uh, institutions really need to be getting good information to their constituents. Well, some of the experts that I spoke with were, were really quite concerned because if you see your police department making light of this very serious illness, would you believe them the next time they talk about it or would you trust them in the future? All right. So, um, Naomi, the other, yeah, the problem here is the one that Jane is articulating, I think, which is that, you know, if somebody doesn't tell the truth, if somebody pushes a false claim, either to make money with some kind of fake remedy uh, or to get people to turn in their meth or just because it's politically expedient or because it amuses them or they want to sow chaos, whatever the motivation, it doesn't confine itself to the person who did that. It doesn't confine itself to the subject that's brought up. Right. It has a way of kind of tainting the entire pool of information. Exactly. And this is one reason why in my book I talk a lot about the importance in the scientific community about being honest about scientific processes, being honest about mistakes, and, and having an honest and free and an open conversation about cases in the past where scientists have made mistakes. Because people are human. We all do make mistakes. And like those police, I'm sure they didn't intend to hurt people, but they foolishly thought that this was funny, and it wasn't. But you know, that happens, right? Nobody's perfect. But I think one of the challenges we have in science is that for a long time, many people created an image, and scientists participated in this, created an image of science as somehow infallible or somehow superior and better than other forms of knowledge production. And, and in some ways, science is superior and better, but in other ways, it's also human and fallible. And so I think it's really important for scientists to be honest about the fallibility so that if it turns out something that we thought was true turns out not to be the case, people don't say, aha, 
see, you were wrong about that, and therefore I don't believe anything you say. All right, so we're going to take a break here, and we're going to thank uh, Jane uh, Litvinenko from BuzzFeed. I would really recommend that you track down her work and her running list of hoaxes. I mean, if you're getting a lot of this stuff on texts, on Facebook, on other kinds of social media, from even from people you know, relatives or people you haven't talked to for a while, you might want to. I mean, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You should check Jane's reporting on it. She's doing a great job of keeping track of all the craziness that's out there. So we'll take a little break, and we will be back with more of Naomi. Two years old, two and a half years old, a child, a beautiful child, went to have the vaccine and came back and now is autistic. Scientific community has said that climate change is one of the great crises facing our planet. Do you agree with the scientific community? I would not call it the greatest crisis, no, sir. All of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? And I also believe that someday scientists will come to see that only the theory of intelligent design provides even a remotely rational explanation. Let us demand that educators around America teach evolution not as fact, but his theory. So that's what it sounds like. Science uh, under attack, often from people with a certain amount of power or maybe a lot of power. You heard President Trump a couple of times. I think you heard Mike Pence. Uh, you also heard the EPA head Andrew Wheeler downplaying the significance of global warming. Um, our guest, uh, Naomi Oreskes, uh, is the author of Why Trust Science. She's the uh, professor of history of science at Harvard University. So Naomi, when was the last time science was under this kind of attack from people at very high levels of political power? Well, I don't, it, uh, that's a hard question. I mean, right. we've seen in the United States for the past 30 years a kind of growing crescendo of attacks by the political right on science, primarily over public and environmental health issues. Um, if we were to try to go back in history and find something comparable well, I mean, there is, there is Darwin. Certainly there was a lot of resistance to Darwin's theory when it was first proposed, for many of the same reasons that some people still resist it today. And then before that, we'd have to probably go back to Galileo and the resistance of the Catholic Church. But I think what's different and worse now is the way in which it's not just about one thing. It's not just about one man or one theory, but the way in which we now have an organized attack on science across a wide range of issues that really, really affect our lives. And, of course, that's the other part. As bad as it was that the Catholic Church arrested Galileo and gave him you know, a very hard time, uh, most people's lives were not really affected by the questions that Galileo was looking at, whereas all of our lives are now affected by climate change, uh, by the question of the coronavirus. These are things that are truly matters of life and death. And in the past, when I sometimes used to say that climate change was a matter of life and death, I think sometimes my audiences would think maybe I was getting a little emotional or a little overwrought. But now I think with the events of this year, particularly the coronavirus, but also the fatalities associated with fires in Australia and California, people are increasingly realizing that these are not just theoretical questions. These are questions that affect our lives in very dramatic ways, including at times matters of life and death. 
It's, you know, there's sort of a contradiction, too, because uh, Pew Research Center looks at this kind of thing from time to time, uh, how the public looks at scientists, how the public looks at science. Um, and, and it's not as though people don't have confidence in science or scientists, right? I mean, yes. yeah, polling is kind of a blunt instrument here, but maybe you could say a little bit more about it. Yes, this is a very important point. So some people talk about the crisis in public trust in science, and, and that's not really correct. There is not a general crisis in public trust in science. The Pew survey that you referred to and other studies that people have done have shown that, by and large, most Americans still do trust science on most things, and that's a good thing. But there are these specific areas where we have problems, and climate change is the specific area that I've worked on most uh, most in my, own, in my own work. And this is where the issue becomes very tricky, because many people don't want to talk about it in partisan political terms. It makes people uncomfortable if you, quote, politicize these issues. And yet, they are political, because the people who have been fomenting disbelief about climate science, fomenting the idea that we should teach religion in the classroom alongside science in a science classroom, these people are doing it for political reasons. And they line up along very strong political party lines. So we actually can't talk about the reality of this situation without addressing the politics behind it. Right. And I think also one of the things that's happened is that that, for example, my doctor, uh, my primary care physician is a very good uh, primary care physician. He's not really in a position to tell me exactly why Einstein's theory of relativity is true. But what he is, he's part of a scientific community that has certain kinds of stand standards that participates in a consensus uh, that uh, a consensus about a body of knowledge that has been vetted and peer reviewed and tested uh, and doesn't get to be part of that body of knowledge unless it rises above certain levels. And the problem I think that I see is once you kick one of the tent poles out, once somebody says, you know, I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure. I've, ne I've never seen any proof of that. Um, that person very quickly can cascade into thinking maybe the earth isn't really round. That's no longer as, as much of a niche view as it used to be. Uh, thinking that Sandy Hook was a staged uh, event that didn't really take place. Uh, thinking all kinds of things, right? Thinking that vaccines aren't safe. It, it's Once you sort of say, well, I have no particular reason to subscribe to this whole body of knowledge, then everything's kind of up for grabs. Exactly. A lot of people think they can pick and choose. Oh, I will believe in let's say, vaccinations against the measles, but I won't believe in evolutionary theory because that offends my religious sensibilities. Well, the problem with that is that you can't really do that because science relies on an infrastructure, it relies on institutions, and it relies on public support. And as you, when you begin to weaken science in one area, then the disbelief, the skepticism begins to spread. So as a social problem, uh, we then have a kind of broader problem of disbelief in expertise and information, which you alluded to in the earlier segment of the show, that the Internet is now filled with all kinds of nonsense on all kinds of issues, and people don't know how to sort the good information from the bad. But also, because science isn't just about people, it's about institutions. And I think we've seen this so clearly in the last few weeks. There's been, in my opinion, not a lot of good information about exactly what happened at CDC in the last month and why we have had inadequate quantities of tests available to test people for the virus. 
But one thing that's pretty clear is that we've had 30 years now of weakening of scientific institutions in this country. I was just reading a piece today about how the Koch brothers were pushing for large cuts to CDC um, quite recently. But there have been cuts across the board in many, many areas of American science. And so we've weakened, particularly federal science, we've weakened the federal science infrastructure. Being a federal scientist is a, is a much less pleasant job in the Trump administration than it has been in previous years. And many high-quality people have left. People who are eligible to retire have decided to take retirement, or people who could move to academia or to the private sector have done so. And so there's been a weakening of the quality and the strength of federal science, and I think we are seeing that in spades now. CDC did not respond well to this issue. I think we'll be, there'll be a lot of studies after the fact to try to figure out exactly what happened, but the consequence of that is very, very severe. So, uh, you know, your book uh, lays out very well uh, the way in which uh, in the uh, decade, in the centuries prior to the 20th century, there were attempts to make, to have royal academies and honored mm-hmm. people and, and accredited people and the quote unquote man of science whom people could trust, who, who really did kind of represent um, a, a, a vetted body of knowledge. I think one of the problems we've had recently, and not just recently, is what I call the off-label scientist. So William Shockley was a Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist. I think he's the reason that we have semiconductors, uh, or at least he's a big part of it. But then he started to make these absurd claims uh, about the link between race and intelligence and go around speaking about that. He had no qualifications for that. Dr. Oz would appear on television wearing scrubs for some reason a lot of the time. He wasn't doing surgery at that moment, and giving airtime to guests who reject the tenets of science. Uh, within the last couple of weeks, David Katz, who's actually a nutrition doctor, uh, had an op-ed published in the New York Times about this whole idea of pivoting away from the current social distancing to get more people back into society faster. That got picked up by Tom Friedman, who based a second column uh, on that idea. Trump and Cuomo both cited it. And it does seem there's a couple of things that are broken, Naomi, but I feel like my profession is broken here a little bit or is, is falling down on the job a little bit that we're not as careful as we should be about figuring out whether somebody who shows up with some scientific or medical credentials is really in an appropriate position to offer useful commentary about something. We just sort of look at the fancy title, I think, sometimes and and jump a little bit too fast. And I wonder if maybe we're enabling this problem a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And I think this is, as you say, one of the things I tried to explain in the book, So expertise, by definition, is very specific. I mean, as you said, knowing about semiconductors is a very particular kind of expertise. It's something that most of us know nothing about, even most other scientists. I mean, I was trained as a geologist. I don't know much about semiconductors. But conversely, William Shockley knew essentially nothing about intelligence. And so this is one of the points that I make in the book, and actually that Eric Conway and I talked about in our previous book, Merchants of Doubt, that... One of the ways disinformation functions is by exploiting the authority of scientists in areas outside their actual expertise. So in Merchants of Doubt, we talked about how a group of physicists, again, similar to the Shockley story, uh, became climate change deniers and how the media, including prestigious newspapers like the New York Times, gave a lot of attention, a lot of well, airtime is the wrong metaphor, but space time to, uh, that sounds wrong too, but you know what I mean, a lot of print space to their claims because they were scientists, they appeared to be credible. 
And one of the things we said in Merchants of Doubt was that journalists really became complicit with the spread of disinformation because they didn't ask the specific questions that they should have asked about what are these people really experts in? Because just because you're a scientist does not make you an expert in all areas of science. And this is a really key way in which disinformation spreads. So I like, I like your term, off-label science. I think that's actually a really great term. And that it reminds us that scientists train in very specific areas, and they know a lot about those areas, but they often know very little. Sometimes they can be actually extremely ignorant in areas that are outside their expertise. All right. So we're talking to Naomi Oriskis. We're going to add one more guest to this conversation. We're going to do that uh, right after this break. So stay with us. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. So, uh, before I go further, I have a lot of people to thank here, starting with Kat Pastor, who's uh, there running the studio flawlessly, as usual. Uh, and also, Josh Nalea. We haven't had a chance to do a Josh show for a while. Josh Nalea is the person who conceived of and uh, and booked this show and planned it uh, down to the last detail. So thanks to Josh, too. And standing behind Josh, my other producers, Jonathan McPants, uh, they're not literally standing behind him. And if they were, they would be keeping six feet uh, distance. But anyway... Uh, um, Betsy Kaplan's our senior producer, Jonathan McPants, also a producer, Katie Tularski and Tim Rasmussen are the big bosses, uh, and TJ and Joe Koss uh, and Gina Matruda are the technical geniuses who've made it possible for us to do radio <laughs> this time. I'm laughing because of something the cat just uh, typed at me. All right. So uh, Naomi Oreskes is, uh, is with us. She's a professor of history of science at Harvard University and the author of several books, including the recently released Why Trust Science. Um, Lisa Safran uh, is director of the Master of Public Health Program at the University of Missouri, teaching storytelling in public health. She's also the co-chair of Health Humanities Consortium, focusing on creative writing, narrative, and public health. I should say that while Josh was working on this show, I decided that one of my personal vows during this time uh, of confinement, this caesura, was that I was going to know more about science and I was going to start subscribing to a lot of science newsletters. And I get this thing called the Nature Briefing, which is really terrific. And, and I think that's where I first saw something about this. And so, uh, Lisa, we should say it, it might seem counterintuitive uh, for some people. Storytelling in science, storytelling in public health, aren't scientists supposed to do the opposite of that? Aren't they supposed to do just the facts uh, and, and not tell stories, particularly subjective stories? So, well, so yeah, go ahead. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be in the conversation. Um, yes, yeah, certainly that is how I think um, scientists have traditionally been trained. Um, and, you know, in this current media and political environment, though, um, where expertise is sus increasingly suspect, all of those kind of objective markers of expertise are also subject to um, this kind of skepticism that Naomi Oreskes was talking about, this organized skepticism and undermining. Um, and so scientists who don't 
avail themselves of other kinds of strategies as well as the traditional strategies, I think are disadvantaged because you have a lot of people, your other guest was talking about all of the crazy stories about snake oil cures. You, there, the, mar- the marketplace of ideas, the airways are filled with stories and concrete details and all kinds of um, authenticity and if scientists try to keep themselves entirely above the fray, a lot of those traditional uh, markers of authority are kind of used a- against them and, and undermine their credibility, I think. Well, Naomi, also, we know the power of personal stories. You, are, I believe, were out in California when some of the news about this broke. And so we had these terrifying stories of coronavirus breaking out in nursing homes and stuff like that. But what put people way over the edge? It was when Tom Hanks and his wife uh, were tested positive. Uh, Naomi, I think you noticed at the time this had a kind of power that other kinds of stories didn't. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think it's because, well, I don't know really what it is. I don't know what the cognitive aspects of our brain are that make us respond more to personal stories than to abstract uh, accounts. But this seems to be empirically the case, that almost all of us respond better when something's made personal, when it's made local, when it's made uh, tangible rather than abstract. And so I agree completely with what Lisa just said. What we're increasingly learning about communicating science is that it's not exempt from those rules, and that scientists who think that they can just lay out the factual information or the abstract theoretical mechanisms and that that would be sufficient I think many of us have have seen the ways in which that is not the case. I mean, you know, Lisa, in some ways, it's sort of common sense that when I'll give an example. So one of the things that I think a lot of people have wanted to know more about these days is how well and how long does a a virus survive on surfaces? How long and how well does the coronavirus survive on surfaces? Do I have to be worried about, you know, some deliveries that I get that might have the coronavirus on a cardboard box? Now, the Washington Post ran a terrific piece by a scientist about this. And I'm the kind of person who will look immediately at that italicized description. Who is the scientist? What does he study? What does he know about? But I think for a lot of people, the question is, who are you? Why should I believe you? So in a way, it is kind of important maybe to say, here's who I am. Here's what I've spent my life learning about. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the mistakes, and you were talking a little bit about the the media's role, and the media can play a lot of different roles. But I think one of the mistakes in communicating around story and public health and science issues is to focus exclusively on the story. The story is enormously powerful. The story, story can be powerful as a way of connecting emotionally with the audience and getting people's attention. Stories are memorable. Um, and, but it's focusing exclusively on the story without connecting it to the broader phenomenon is also a disservice. So we need to go back and forth. You know, the science, scientists need to also communicate the science, the science and the story. The, the message and the messenger, both are important, and either of them, you know, without the other part, is less effective as, as it could be. You know, the concern, Naomi, that I have, and I think a lot of people would have, is that's also kind of how the disseminators of false information operate, right? They try to connect with you on a personal level. They try, uh, yeah. They, yeah, go ahead, to take it away. That's, yeah, absolutely, because it works. 
I mean, when I see storytelling to public health students, um, you know, they're very leery because they see misinformation coming through story. And they, stories are used to do all kinds of things, including make you afraid of things, um, sell you products. Uh, but the problem is, is if with people with real, tangible, useful, valuable, necessary information and um, those important institutional credentials don't also use those tools, they are disadvantaged. So absolutely, they can be used for ill, but they can be used for good. And to just say, well, I'm not going to touch that, I'm just going to leave that to the disinformers is a real um, error, I think. Yeah, I agree with that completely, if I can jump in here. Thank you for that, Lisa, because I think that's so well put. I mean, the way I think about it is you could use fire to burn down a house, but you can also use fire to cook food. So the fact that some evil, terrible people use the tools of communication for disinformation doesn't mean that those tools are necessarily um, contaminated or tainted tools. And one of the things that I noticed very strongly when I was first starting to work on the issue of disinformation, and particularly when Eric Conway and I were working on the role of the tobacco industry in this story, one of the things we noticed was how professional they were, how they hired professional public relations Mm -hmm. firms, how they had communication workshops, how they hired advertising agencies. And these people were experts. They were professionals in communication. And meanwhile, scientists were doing this very amateurish, very ineffective thing. And so um, it's not really surprising that for a long time the tobacco industry story dominated because they told their story much more effectively than scientists and public health officials did. Yeah, so, it can be really intimidating and discouraging for scientists and people who who study public health. It's like, how do we compete with that, with the real information? And and one of the things that I tell when I do workshops or with my class is that an advantage that the scientists have who are have spent their careers working on these issues um, and public health people is that they actually have a really important information to share. Um, and, you know, they have the power of this knowledge behind them. And they also, my colleagues and I have been studying the role of authenticity in science communication. They believe, they really believe it. They're invested. You've spent your life um, studying how to prevent infectious diseases. You care a lot about that. And you don't have to be a polished CEO of a PR company to have that come through. So, you know, Lisa, before we run out of time, there's an, there's a tribalism to all this, too, right? People are sort of, well, I'm team Oprah. And if Oprah says something, I think it's true, uh, you know, uh, and or I'm team Mike Pence or I'm team. People belong to groups and they tend to believe what that group believes. And I think it's hard to peel them off from that group around a specific scientific question. So so how does communication help you? break an alliance like that? Or is that not possible? Well, I think, I think it is. It's hard, though. Of course, I think Naomi Oreskes and her colleagues in the Merchant Doubt I, that, you know, showed how easy it is in a certain way to politicize um, scientific issues so it shuts down debate and makes community consensus impossible. Um, it's like you have a well and you want to, you know, dirty the water in the well. It's easy to just throw things in, you know, and a certain kind of partisan politicization of issues is like the dead squirrel. You just throw that in. And so to separate and filter that water is a really, really hard project. But one of the ways to do it, I think, is to de-emphasize the partisan politics aspect um, because scientists, you know, everybody is a lot of different things. They vote red or vote blue, but they also 
our parents and have careers that they care about and are hunters or naturalists or gardeners. And so if you're only talking in terms of partisan politics, you won't reach a consensus because we're pretty evenly divided. But if you can shift the emphasis to other individual aspects and perspectives and, uh, of people's lives, you have more chance of creating space for trust. I'm going to stop the conversation there because we're just about out of time and I want to have time to thank, first of all, Lisa Safran, a director of the Master of Public Health program at University of Missouri, teaching storytelling in public health. And especially she's been here for us uh, the whole show. Uh, Naomi Oreskes, uh, professor of the history of science at Harvard University, author of several books, including the recently released Why Trust Science. And I want to end on a positive note, too. At the end of all this, we're going to have heroes. I mean, you know, Fauci is already a hero. Everybody knows who Dr. Fauci is. And I think the level of trust is really high. Although I should add, he is being attacked mercilessly by the kinds of people that Jane, our first guest from BuzzFeed uh, uh, Chronicles, and they're circulating all kinds of like horrible uh, lies about him. But I think, you know, when the statues go up at the end of all this, they're going to be about scientists who've done incredible things already, sequencing the genome of this thing in a matter of weeks. And they're now studying very intensely uh, the way the immune system responds. Why does one 38-year-old healthy person get really sick from this, uh, you know, and another person who's maybe older and less healthy not get uh, really sick? We're going to unlock some of these mysteries under pressure. Medical science is going to do it. We're going to have an incredible moment of gratitude when it's all over. And I have a moment of gratitude to all of you for listening today. Uh, We're going to have a show about hygiene from our past tomorrow. And thank you for listening today. And there goes somebody's phone. So bye-bye now. <laughs>